everyone doing tonight? Yeah, I like that. Wow. It's a strong Sunday night in Brickell. It's good to be with you all this evening. My name is Carter. I'm the lead pastor here at Crossbridge, and it's wonderful to worship with you all. Can we thank our band for leading us in such a powerful and sweet time of worship? It's amazing. You know, God is calling people to serve in so many different places in this church, from worship to, as you heard from Pastor Johnny, uh, bridge kids and the need that we have there with the welcome team and the foundation set up and tear down. And so I just want to give a charge and an encouragement to you. If you've been coming here for a few weeks or a few months or a few years and you feel like you haven't found your place yet to serve, would you allow myself or Pastor Johnny to help you uh, find a place where you can serve within your schedule and your time and with your talents. We believe that it's powerful when you serve together with God's people. And it really makes true what we say all the time and that this is a family. And when you serve the family and you get to know the needs of the family, it really is transformative. And so I want to encourage you to serve with us. Let us know how we can serve you as well. And this evening... One of the ways that we're going to dive in as a family into God's word is in episode two of our brand new series, as you saw in the trailer, called Woven Stories. And the title of this sermon is The Swampland of the Soul. Sounds exciting, right? Sounds like it's going to be a real upbeat sermon tonight. Swampland of the Soul. Now let me tell you, before I tell you what the sermon is about... What we are focused on for the next few months, our pastoral team, as we're praying about the series to jump into after Easter, we felt like what we needed to speak about was relationships. In, in specific, the dynamics of relationships and the things that affect us and our story that there in turn affect the relationships that we have. So when I speak about relationships, I mean our relationship with friends, with coworkers, with a boss, relationship with uh, loved ones, relationship with a spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and also our relationship with God. Last week, we launched the series by saying that you have to start at the very foundation of knowing yourself in order for you to be able to know anyone else. In fact, John Calvin, the reformer in the 1500s, said that to the degree that you know yourself is to the degree that you can know God. So it's very important that you know yourself because then if you do not know yourself, you'll struggle to know other people and you'll also struggle to know God and who he is. That's why God tells us to love our neighbor as ourselves, have to know ourselves. And so we're going to be looking not at just the specific relationships. So this series is not going to be this week's on marriage, this week's on friendship, this week's on relationship with coworkers. It's going to be more about the things that affect our story and the stories of others and how we come to understand them, process them, find healing and victory through them so that our relationships might deepen in all the different type of relationships that we have. So episode two tonight, Swampland of the Soul, is on the topic of shame. Can I get a round of applause for that shame, you know? <laughs> That's awesome. That's when I know i got an engaged crowd tonight when you're clapping for shame. Shame is not really a conversation starter. It's not something that we talk about often. You don't get together with friends on a Friday night at a dinner party and you have a bowl of conversation starters and you pull it out and it says, share your shame. And you're like, here we go. Let me tell you everything that's happened in my life. That doesn't happen. But we all have shame. We all have things that we hide away, that we cover up, that we don't want other people to see, that we... Know that God sees, but we don't want him to see it, and we act like maybe he doesn't see it if we don't think about it. Shame is something that is a real part of the story of every one of us. 
I was watching this YouTube clip this week where it was a dad and a daughter. It was one of these prank videos, and it was kind of dealing with shame. So it was outside of a Walmart. You have a dad standing next to his little daughter, and she's holding up a cardboard sign. And the sign says, I cheated on a test. She's standing there at the entrance holding up this sign, and people are walking by, and they're so confused, and they're also getting kind of upset. Like, why would you put your daughter in front of a Walmart to shame her because she cheated on a test? And people are like, what, what, what are you doing? He's like, I'm trying to teach her a lesson. You know, you could tell she cheated on a test. And then when he's not looking, she flips the sign, and the other side of the sign says, my dad plays angry birds in church. And so people start laughing, and, and then the dad's like, it's not funny. And he's like, she like, they're like, no, look at the sign. And then she flips it back over, and he's like, why is it funny that she cheated on the test? But it's, it was a funny video because it dealt with the two aspects of shame. One side of shame is to, to learn a lesson from it. You need to be taught a lesson because you did something wrong, and you feel shame, and you feel bad. And so you expose it. Learn a lesson. The other side of it is maybe to laugh away shame. And I want to say this. You cannot learn a lesson from shame, just be taught a lesson and therefore it goes away. And you also can't laugh away shame. It's very deep-rooted. That title of the sermon, Swampland of the Soul, comes from people that study the Swiss psychiatrist Carl Jung. And he says that shame is like the swampland of the soul. Deep, hard to move through. Not attractive at all. And so we're going to be working through that tonight. And I, want to see, I want you to see three things. The first is the nature of shame. I want you to diagnose the shame in your story. And then also, lastly, the antidote to shame. So that's what we're going to be moving through together. We're going to be in a few passages this evening. Our key passage will be 1 Corinthians chapter 13, starting in verse 4. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. It will also be on the screen behind me. And if you have the Crossbridge Brickle app on Android or iPhone, download it or open it up because there's a lot of notes there. And a lot of the slides are not going to have the notes that you may want to work through and process through this evening. But before we dive into the chapter, I want to deal with some definitions because I think this is important. The first thing is that shame and guilt are, very, are two different things. And it's important to understand that. Guilt is I've done something wrong. Shame is, I am wrong. I've done something bad. Shame is, I am bad. Very different. I, I want you to raise your hand if you have made a mistake in your life and you have said, hey, I own it, I made a mistake. Raise your hand if you've ever said that before. I own it, I've made a mistake. All of us, maybe in a work environment, in a friendship, in a relationship, you have said, hey, I, I made a mistake. I was wrong. I made a mistake. That's guilt. Shame is I am the mistake. It's not I made a mistake. It's that I'm the mistake. I'm the problem. I'm the issue. It's attached to our identity. It is very deep. It has hooks. It's not something that you can just laugh away or just learn a lesson and then therefore it goes away. When I say the word shame, I think most of us in this room automatically begin to think about moral failings, things that we've done that are wrong, mistakes that we've made, moral things, ethical decisions. But shame is deeper than that. Shame affects more than just the things that you've done right or wrong in your life. It affects the way that you've engaged business, 
the professional arena. You can feel shame for having business failings, educational failings. You can feel shame for suffering financial loss. You can feel shame from broken relationships. You can feel shame for making an impulsive decision that you lost out on an opportunity because you were impulsive. Shame causes you to think these kind of thoughts. I'm an imposter. Maybe you felt that professionally before. You compare yourself to others and you think, I'm a business fraud. I'm not as smart as everybody else in my class. I'm, I'm not intelligent. Maybe you think that you're a financial moron. You're not like everybody else that has it together and they have all their savings account and they, they're building all this wealth and you, you, don't, you don't know how to do that. You can't keep a budget. You feel financial loss. Maybe you feel lazy and so you say, I'm lazy. I'm detached. Maybe you've said this to yourself before. I'm not valuable. Not really. I'm not lovable. Not really. I'm pathetic. Shame is an identity that you speak over yourself. I have no worth, I have no value, I'm pathetic, I'm a hypocrite. Maybe you've come here tonight and you've walked in and maybe you've been thinking this. I was another week. Another week where I come to church and I think back on my week and I didn't think about God at all. I didn't read my Bible, I didn't pray, maybe a couple prayers here and there before bed, but it wasn't real. And I come back to church and I'm around all these people and I, I know everyone here is a stronger, better Christian than me. I see people raising their hands and I... I'm just here because I know I'm supposed to be here and I feel like a spiritual failure. Shame can affect every aspect of our lives. It's the swampland of the soul. It's deep. Brene Brown, who's an American professor and researcher, she has one of the top five most viewed TED Talks ever. It's a hilarious story about how when she first gave a TED Talk, it was on vulnerability. And she was terrified. She says she didn't leave her house for three days because there was 500 people in the room and she was like vulnerable. And she was like, they said they're going to put it on the internet. What if like 700 people see it? This was like in 2011, 2010. She's like, I had no category for 5 million. But she has devoted her life to studying shame and vulnerability. And she says this, men and women experience shame differently. They feel shame differently. And there's shades and variations, but these are two generalities that she has said as she's devoted her life to studying this topic, that this is how most men and most women process and feel shame. So I wanted to share it with you because she's given her life to this. She said this, shame for women is a web of unattainable competing expectations about who you are supposed to be. Shame for women is a web of unattainable, competing expectations about who you are supposed to be. She says, it is the feeling that you have to do it all, you have to do it all perfectly, and you can never let anyone see you sweat. How women process shame. She said, for men, men feel shame in one way. It's one thing. It is to be perceived as weak. Be weak, to have a chink in your armor. And I wanted to bring that up because as we dive into this tonight, that means if, those, if one of those definitions of how you feel shame and what makes you feel shame, if that's true of you, then it means that you need to approach tonight in one of two ways. If you feel like there's a web of unattainable expectations of who you're supposed to be and you can never meet them, 
then you need to enter in tonight just allowing God's words to wash over you and do not feel the pressure to walk away tonight with new expectations you need to place on your life. And if you feel like weakness causes you shame and you need to appear strong, then that means that you need to actually engage the, sh the shame of your story tonight and don't roll your eyes. Like I know other people have that but not me. You need to allow and embrace your weakness to come forward. In fact, it is God who said that when you are weak, he is strong. You need to open up and to engage that. And so when we think about the shame that we have, I, I want to think about two ways that we deal with it. and They're connected together. The first way I think that we deal with shame is that we hero story it. I've called this hero storying your shame. And here's what it means. Whenever you've maybe been in a, in a small group or with a, a spouse or with a close friend and you've kind of exposed, maybe you felt, uh, you know, enough courage and safety to be vulnerable, oftentimes what we find is that we hero story our shame. So we say something like this, here's, here, here's things I've done in the past, here's what's happened in the past, but I'm good now. We expose maybe a little bit of our shame. But then we make sure to say that we learned a lesson from it, that we've grown stronger from it, that we, we're, we're not that anymore. It doesn't affect us anymore. I, I felt like this in the past, but now I don't. We, we make it upbeat. We learned a lesson. We hero story it. Because a hero cannot have weakness. A hero cannot meet expectations. A hero has to be strong and put together. So we hero story our shame. But it doesn't help. It's still there. And it robs our story of its authenticity. And it robs us of the truth of the moment. Because it, it doesn't conveniently just go away because you say, oh, yeah, yeah that, that's part of my story. And I felt that before. But now I'm good. I've learned from it. I'm better. I'm stronger. Everything's great. The future's bright. It doesn't make it true just because we say it. And so what happens typically because we feel the need to hero story our shame is that we then hide it and cover it up. Because we don't want anyone to see it. And we want to pretend like it's not there. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve in the garden, enjoying God's perfect creation. God is walking in the garden with them. And God says to them, you can eat of any tree except for this one tree. Adam and Eve together are at the tree and the serpent is speaking to Eve and she is deceived and she eats from the tree and then Adam who is next to her as well. And it says in a moment they realize that they're naked and they feel shame. Guilt too, but the text tells us shame. I'm the mistake. I'm the problem. I'm a mess. They feel this identity upon them. And both of them have the same reaction, to cover it up and hide. They cover their bodies and they go hide from God and from one another. That is the natural human tendency when dealing with shame, is to cover it up and hide it. We do that with friends and loved ones. And other. We cover it up and we hide it. We, I, I've had this in the past. I'm going to be vulnerable. Here's my mistakes. Here's, but I've learned through it. I'm hero storing my shame. And now what we're really still actually struggling with, because shame doesn't conveniently just go away. It's the swampland of the soul. We cover it up and we hide it. We don't let anyone see it. We don't want to talk about it. 
Maybe if you knew that tonight's topic was shame, you would have said, I don't know, maybe I'm going to join online tonight. We hide it and we cover it up, even from God. I want you to think about your prayer life. Do you bring your shame to God? The things that you tell yourself, the things that you believe about yourself, the things that are a part of your story and your past that are affecting your present. We struggle. We cover it up. I, I did a video this last May on Instagram, and it was just like a general curiosity. And the title of the video was this. Um, what was the title? Hold on. It was, How Do Gen Zs Do It? Do I have any Gen Zs in the room? I know we got some Gen Zs. You may not know. They're like, the Gen Zs are like, don't label me, okay? Don't tell me what I am. But my question was this. How do they wear hoodies in 90-degree weather? I don't get it. I see all the young youth of this, gener this young generation wearing hoodies all the time. And my question was like, actually tell me. I'm curious. I'm an old millennial, so I don't know. This was not a part of, of my upbringing. This is not what we did. And so I thought maybe it's like the classrooms are colder now. Maybe it's just like a fashion trend. And so, we, you know, you got to sacrifice for fashion sometimes. Maybe they somehow feel like it's comfy, but I'm like, it's 90 degrees outside. So I put that, in, and many of the responses were like, it's comfortable, and, you know, the classrooms are cold, and very few of those. Some of them are like, it's a, it's a cool look, it's a trend. One, one person said that uh, we're just built different. That was what they said. I'm like, okay. And that video was my own, like, little personal version of viral, like very, very small. But in a very quick instant, that video went like 35,000 views and had like 70 plus comments from people I don't know at all. And there was all this engagement. And here's what was very interesting. The overwhelming response on that video was that the reason that most young people wear a hoodie is because of shame. Body shame in particular. To hide their body, their insecurities, scars. And it's just easier to put on a hoodie and to cover up and to feel like no one can see you. Shame. It's a part of all, every generation. It's a part of every one of us here. And we all do different things to cover it up and to hide it. We all feel it in different ways. Brene Brown said this. If you put shame in a Petri dish, it needs three things to grow. Secrecy, silence, and judgment. What shame needs to grow is for you to tell yourself that you are this. I'm a mistake. I am bad. I am polluted. I'm a hypocrite. I'm an imposter. I'm not valuable. I'm not loved. And then to keep it quiet and hide it from people. And it will grow. So the question is, What's the antidote to shame? Can't be to hide it. Can't be to cover it up. It can't be just a hero story and act like we've, we've, we've moved past it and we've learned from it. The antidote to shame is love. It's love. But love and shame are in a battle. There's a tension between love and shame. And it's difficult because shame affects all that we do. It affects parenting. 
It affects pastoring. It affects athletics and working out. It affects teaching and studying. It affects closing deals. It affects settling legal cases, studying markets, engaging clients, pursuing romance, developing a marriage, building wealth, advocating for justice. It literally affects every part of who we are. All that we do is in response to love and shame competing for our attention. Love and shame are competing for authority over our memories, over our emotions, over our behaviors. From business to education to relationships to church and faith, shame is competing with love for authority over your emotions and your behavior and even your memories. So I told you tonight the key passage was 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. This is often called the love passage. It's read at many weddings. It's a beautiful description of love that the Apostle Paul gives. He starts it out and he says, love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy or boast. But before we read it, I want you to hear the framing that Paul gives. Right before he says what love is... And how love looks in action, because love is an action. He speaks about amazing things that if they're done without love, they're meaningless. Here's what he says. You can speak in the tongues of angels, but if it's not out of love, it's just noise coming from your mouth. Now listen to this. You can have prophetic powers know all the mysteries of the world, and have faith to move mountains. That's amazing. But if there's no love, you're nothing. He could have continued. He could have said something like, you can be the top of your class and have great opportunities on the horizon. But if you are pursuing your education and your future not out of love, then it's meaningless. You can have great wealth and a great reputation in your professional career, but if you do not love other people, if you do not pursue your calling with love, then it is nothing. You can lead and support an organization that's advocating for change in the world and doing great things, but if your motivation is not love, it's a waste. The Apostle Paul wants us to understand that love is central to everything. And it is, in fact, competing with shame. And I, I believe that when Paul writes 1 Corinthians 13, he's actually thinking about shame on the other side. Because the Apostle Paul struggled with shame. Can you believe that? The Apostle Paul, the man that we think about when we read the New Testament, because he wrote the majority of the books in the New Testament and planted church all, churches all over the Roman Empire and preached the gospel boldly and suffered great persecution and never gave up the faith. In fact, he was martyred for his faith. He struggled with shame. He spoke about it. In fact, many scholars say that they believe that when Paul references this thorn in his side, this ailment and difficulty and temptation and struggle that keeps plaguing him, that he's speaking about shame. Because he's constantly talking about how God's love combats our shame and tells us that it is to be removed. It is no more. 
And you can understand why Paul would struggle with shame if you know his story. His origin story is very different from the story that we read about in Scripture. We get glimpses of it in the book of Acts in particular. But Paul's life was really divided in between two passions. One was a passion to destroy Christ and the church and to kill Christians. That was his origin story. He was raised with a hatred in his heart for the church, for the name of Jesus, for the message of the gospel. His story is one of he went actively out to cities to find Christians, imprison them, and kill them. He wanted to destroy the movement of the church. He had a passion for it. And then on the road to Damascus, he meets the risen Jesus Christ, and his life is radically altered and changed forever, and he has a new passion, which is to do the exact opposite, to preach Christ and to plant churches and to support and love Christians. I want you to consider how he felt every time he planted a church in a city that a few years ago he was looking to find Christians and kill them. I want you to imagine how he felt when he was walking alongside of other Christians who were being persecuted and lost loved ones because of their faith and they were being burned at the stake by Nero. How he felt knowing that he was one of those people. He struggled with shame. That's why he reminds us and himself in Romans chapter 9 verse 33. The one who believes in him, Jesus that is will never be put to shame. He will never be put to shame. And so with that in mind, I want you to consider 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. And see that shame is on the other side of love. He says this, Love is patient and kind, which means shame is agitated and cruel. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. Shame is all of those things. Love does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Shame dominates and it builds resentment. Love does not rejoice at wrongdoing like shame does, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Shame gives up, it is uncertain, it is hopeless, and it fades in all pursuits. Love is on the other side of shame. See, I think all of us here, we want to live a life with love, not a life from shame. We want to live with love, not from shame. Every one of us. But it does not just conveniently go away because you know that it's, it's unfortunate and it's a swampland of the soul and it's tough to wade through and none of us like it. It doesn't just go away because you want it to go away. We have to be authentic. There's no five steps to no more shame. There's no one sermon to rule them all and then the shame's gone. It's tough to wade through and work through. There is shame in life that we struggle with. It's not weakness to admit that. It's strength. But there is love on the other side. 
there is love on the other side. So how do you deal with your shame? What is the antidote to shame? It is love on the other side. It is love on the other side. They are in a battle, but when you look to love, love wins. See, the only thing that can push back shame from your story is the one that loves you despite your shame. The only thing that can push back love, shame from your story is the one who loves you despite your shame and tells you that it is no more. It's a very specific love. It's not a generalized love. It's the love of the very God who looks at you and says, I see your shame no more. You are forgiven. Go in peace. I want to close with a story in Luke chapter 7. It's an interaction with Jesus and a woman and a bunch of religious elites, influential people in the Jewish community. They were Pharisees. The story starts out with this Pharisee who invites Jesus to his house. So this house is full of religious fundamentalists who are very influential, who are placed up as elite in society for their standing spiritually. So Jesus is there, he's eating with them, and they're speaking, and a woman comes in. Now this woman who comes in is not named, but she's given a description. It says this, she was a woman of the city who was a sinner. So a woman comes in, it's differentiating this woman from the Pharisees. The Pharisees, they are very religious, they maintain this very polished posture, everybody sees them, they go to temple, they do all the right things, they're following God perfectly, they're, you know, purifying themselves, and their worship is pure, they are holy, and now we have this woman who comes in, and she's a woman of the city, and she is a sinner, which means she's most likely a prostitute, because she's marked as someone in the city that people know her sin. It's public. The shame that she struggles with and carries in her story is seen by everybody. So she comes in to this dinner party, not invited, and she goes right up to Jesus. As she's approaching Jesus, she is bawling, crying, and she kneels down at Jesus' feet, a woman of the city who is a sinner, and she begins to cry tears over Jesus' feet. And as his feet are actually getting wet with her tears, she takes her hair and she cleans his feet with her hair. See, the custom of honor and respect was to wash someone else's feet in that culture. So she comes to Jesus to honor him, to show him respect, and to show him love. And she's washing his feet with her tears. She uses her hair, not a towel, to clean his feet. She then kisses his feet, and she takes an alabaster jar of ointment, a perfume, and then she anoints his feet with this. And the Pharisees sitting around the table are disgusted. I say, who is Jesus that he would allow a woman like this to kiss his feet and anoint his feet and even be near him. No way Jesus could be Messiah, let alone a prophet, because nobody holy would let a woman like this come near to him and wash his feet like that. That is 
disgusting, totally unacceptable. Jesus then looks up at the table and says, she has done for me what none of you have done. She has shown great love. And he says this, her sins are many. He doesn't brush over it. Yeah. Her sins are many. Authentic about her story. It's seen by everybody. Jesus knows it too. Her sins are many, but she has loved much. And then Jesus looks at her right in the eye and he says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Do you feel that? She approaches Jesus with her authentic self. She's not hiding anything. She knows everybody knows her story. Everybody knows her shame. She couldn't cover it and hide it if she wanted to. And she walks into that room and she has the courage to fall down before Jesus and to cry at his feet and to wash his feet, just wanting to show respect and honor, positioning herself in a, in a place of humility before Jesus. And Jesus looks at her and he says, you have loved greatly. Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't go in shame. Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven, though they are many. They are white, clean. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is therefore now, what's the word? No. What's the word? No. Condemnation for those who are in Christ. Listen, when you approach Jesus with your authentic self, hey, God, here's who I am. Here's what I've been through. Here's what I struggle with. Here's the shame of my story. Here's the things I tell myself. Here is the swampland of my soul. I, I don't feel like I should be before you, but I am going to have the courage to bow before you in faith, posture of humility, to respect and honor you, God. Jesus does not look at you and say, thank you, but you have a lot to work on. He looks at you and says, yeah, your sins are many, but I died for your sins. There is no condemnation any longer they are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Don't go in condemnation. Don't go in shame. Don't go in judgment of yourself. Don't go to keep everything secret and silent so you can appear like you have everything together. No. When you are weak, he is strong. Jesus says this at the Pharisees when they're sitting around the table. He says, those that are forgiven little love little. See, that is why you are called and I am called to come before the very God of the universe who loves us enough to, to say, hey, listen, I have paid for everything. I have died for your sins. I have forgiven your guilt and your sin and your shame. It is no longer there. It's wiped away. You're clean. So you can come to me with your authentic self. You can bring the whole story, all the shame that you have, and know that you're forgiven from a lot. Because when you know that you're forgiven from a lot, you love a lot. He wants to heal you of your shame. There is love on the other side of your shame that is competing for your story. Your story is not defined by your shame. It is defined by the love of God who loves you despite your shame and he wipes it away. 
He says, there's no condemnation. Go in peace. The things that you tell yourself are not the things that God says to you. He calls you a son, a daughter, a friend. He doesn't call you an imposter. He calls you loved. In fact, the language for the Christian in the New Testament predominantly is beloved. One who is loved by God. My prayer tonight for us is that we would look at ourselves authentically, that we would be okay to expose our shame in appropriate circles with close friends, that we wouldn't try to hero story it and act like we've learned our lesson and we're way better now, that we wouldn't judge ourselves, we wouldn't keep it in silence, but we would come before God in particular and say, God, let love win over my shame. Would your love pour over me and heal me of my shame? Would I experience the peace, Jesus, that you promise? The forgiveness that is granted through faith alone. And would that be the guiding marker of my story? The love of God. I want to close by asking us to do something. I believe that the Christian faith is not just composed of our minds and our emotions, but also our bodies. We come in a moment to take communion, we take it physically. We sing songs with our mouth and we move our hands and we clap and we embrace one another in love. Our bodies are involved in worship. And one of the things that shame causes us to do is to deny it and to hide it and to push it down and to feel like we can never expose anything, that we're weak and we need healing from our shame. So we judge ourselves and we hide it and we push it away. And so I want to ask us to do this now. I'm going to pray for us. In particular, I want to pray for those of us in this room that have shame that's a driving factor in our story. Shame that is deep down that we've hidden, that is affecting us, that is guiding us. And I want you to believe that Jesus wants to pour his love upon you and heal you tonight. To have love be the marker in your story and not shame. And so the way that I want you to engage your body is I want to ask us all just to bow our heads and if you're here tonight and you say that I want God to pour his love and his peace upon my life and my story and my shame would you either just open your hands before you or would you just raise your hands you don't have to put them all up in the sky but just right here say God I'm not going to be silent about my shame I'm not going to be silent in secrecy I have shame and I want your love to pour on me and I want you to heal me of it I want your love to guide my story. So 